in our ongoing efforts to engage with people from as many different communities as possible, we will speak to guests whose views may variously differ from or align with yours. Green Teacher is an inclusive space and we welcome people from all backgrounds, perspectives and faiths in a collective spirit of collaboration and exploration. This is Talking with Green Teachers, a show where environmental educators discuss recent developments, big ideas and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... I'm pretty sure that high schools and middle schools are talking about sustainability, but sustainability is not environmental racism. When you open up a conversation about environmental racism, what you're talking about is racism. You get to talk about colonialism. You get to talk about other structural forms of inequality. And it gives students some insight into how environmental racism but other inequalities manifest. So we need a deeper discussion on environmental racism. September 2019, Toronto, Ontario. The city is abuzz with the annual Toronto International Film Festival. Here, at the Elgin Theatre, the audience eagerly awaits the lights to dim for the world premiere of There's Something in the Water, a documentary co-directed by Ellen Page and Ian Daniel and based on Dr. Ingrid Waldron's book of the same title. Ingrid Waldron is an associate professor in the Faculty of Health at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia and is the director of the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequalities and Community Health, or ENRICH, project, through which she conducts community-based research into the impacts of environmental racism on Mi'kmaq and African Nova Scotian communities. Ian met with Ingrid to discuss her ongoing work as well as the role educators play in responding to environmental racism. So let's start just with the, the definition of environmental racism. I know the definition's been around for many years, but for the uninitiated, what is the working definition of it? Uh, environmental racism refers to the disproportionate uh, impacts of polluting industries in racialized communities, specifically indigenous communities, black communities, uh, communities of color, uh, specifically in the United States. Um, so it, it basically means that there are communities that tend to be selected uh, for industrial polluters and other environmentally dangerous projects. They're disproportionately uh, selected and the siting happens in those communities and there's a you know, spatial clustering of those hazards in those communities. And because those communities are disproportionately selected for those uh, industries, they tend to have a specific environmental health inequities, uh, like high rates of cancer and reproductive illness, um, respiratory illness, etc. And this, of course, is really laid bare in the documentary, and you have so many personal accounts firsthand from people. You live and work currently in Nova Scotia. How does the environmental racism manifest on the ground in Nova Scotia? Well, it manifests on the ground in similar ways to the rest of Canada, where I have found that right. Black communities, most of which are in rural areas, are, at least the ones that I have uh, visited, they are close to landfills or other waste sites. Indigenous communities 
are close to similar sites, you know, whether it's polluting industries, pulp and paper mills, uh, they're often selected for pipelines. And I've seen that in Nova Scotia, but also uh, a student created a, a map for me using GIS analysis uh, in 2016. And actually that map actually shows that, yes, there is a disproportionate siting of these industries in these communities. The map has two layers. It has one layer for uh, Mi'kmaq communities, that's the indigenous community in Nova Scotia, showing that they are close to these sites. Uh, the other layer is for African Nova Scotian communities, showing something similar. You will also find on the map that there are white communities, of course, that are close to uh, these sites. But what we see is that indigenous and black communities are more likely uh, to be near these sites. The map was a great tool or is a great tool because it provides further evidence, particularly to those naysayers, particular evidence that these are communities that are disproportionately impacted. And that is the same map that's featured near the beginning of the film as well. Yes, they took, uh, it doesn't look uh, that similar, but um, I think if you go onto my website, you'll see that it's much more colorful, but they took the yeah. framework of my, of my map and that's what you see in the film, yes. Yeah, and it certainly does show a very stark picture. Yeah. You're very involved in the community, and it's quite evident just in reading the book how many direct quotations you have from members of various communities across Nova Scotia. And with the Enrich Project, uh, for which you are the director, you're involved in community-based research. That's your core approach. That's what you and your colleagues use. Just walk us through community-based research and why it's so applicable to your work with the Enrich Project. Well, when I started doing this project in 2012, I knew it had to be community-based because I knew that it was research that needed to be partnered research with communities. I was entering communities that uh, had very little trust in academics and academic research because they, what they find often or how they feel is that academic research uh, doesn't lead to anything meaningful in their community. So many of these communities have been burnt. So I, I thought it was important to do community-based research because of some of those issues, because of the trust issues that these communities have. But essentially community-based research means that you are involving the communities right from the get-go. And it's kind of an opposition to academic research where professors will determine what the objectives are and what the research questions are and what the methods are. And I knew that I couldn't do that. I needed to hear from the communities and meet with them in person to find out what do you think the research questions should be? What do you think the research objectives should be? So community-based research means that you are partnering with communities right from the start, even before, ideally, you put that ethics application in. Um, they are there with you when you're making decisions about methodology, um, about how to share the knowledge coming out of the research and anything else having to do with that research. And that's worked really well for me, but I can't see this research being done in any other way based on I guess what has come out of this project in terms of having really great and connected relationships over the years with these communities and knowing now and feeling the sense of trust uh, that they have in me so yeah this is the perfect way to go for this topic and specifically for these communities Sure. I think I remember in the book, you made reference to connecting the quote-unquote ivory tower with the community. And that's certainly something we hear about a lot in, in mainstream media is the, the ivory tower being so disconnected and community-based research is the antithesis of that. 
you mentioned how the Picto Landing First Nation, when you first approached them, were, as you just described, sort of burnt out by research, maybe didn't have that trust in researchers. What was the process that you went through to progress and sort of break through that barrier and develop those relationships with the community members? That was a hard one. I mean, I have those relationships now, and some of those individuals are on my Facebook page now. So it's really interesting. Yeah. But that that speaks to what I discussed earlier, that they've yeah. had a lot of, they said to me at that time, Dalhousie professors, environmental scientists, I would assume, coming up to the community and, community and doing research there, and they were tired, and they were burnt out, and they didn't want any more. And I learned a lot from that experience because I realized that, you know, you need to take the temperature of the community. You need to know what they want at any given mm. time. And me coming into that community is not what they wanted at that time. And I had to, I had to be patient. Um, how did I break through that? Well, at that time, or even before I, I tried to connect with the community, I had already developed a relationship with an activist there. And he had been on my Facebook page and my email list for quite a long time. And he was watching, he was watching me. And I think it was around 2016, he said, I've been watching you, Ingrid, and you know, I'm liking what you're doing, but I was intimidated to approach you. And I said, you're intimidated. I said, I was intimidated by Big Demanding First Nation because I thought to myself, like, they don't want me. They don't want me there. <laughs> and I felt intimidated. He said, no, 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 I've been watching you and I'm liking what you're doing and I would like you to come to the community. And this was in, I mean, I was to the community for the first time in, 2017, you know, and my first attempt was in 2013. So I was really patient. Yeah, <laughs> four, four years. years. Right. But I kind of let it go and let things happen as they should, which is, you know, having somebody invite me instead of inviting myself, which some academics make the mistake of doing that. And I did go down to the community in June of 2017 for the first time and I met community members and I heard uh, some of their concerns. And since that time, I've developed a relationship with the chief, Chief Andrea Paul, who's in the movie, and other members of the community. And now we are doing speaking engagements together with other members of the community. So it's kind of proof that you need to be patient and you need to let the communities tell you when they're ready for you. With community relationships established, it was then time to examine each community's unique challenges and determine a path forward. The Connecting the Dots event was was held in July 2015, and about nine months prior to that, you held another event that you described in the book as being very, very heady. And with the Connecting the Dots event, you wanted it to have a different vibe, a different feel to it. What was what were you sort of aiming for with that? With the Connecting the Dots event, of course, we're dealing with a serious issue, environmental racism, but I also wanted it to be celebratory which is why I had a drum group at the beginning, an African, a, a Mi'kmaq drum group, an indigenous drum group, all female, and a male, uh, sorry, um, a multicultural uh, drum group. So there was a sense of celebration because I included musicians and artists in that event. So the event was bookended by those two drum groups, but certainly sandwiched in between was what I always do, which is, try to be educational, try to raise awareness and consciousness. And that often includes, or always includes, inviting members of both communities, the Black community and the Indigenous community, to sit on a panel. But also within that, having people from diverse experiences, diverse professions, diverse viewpoints. So I had a politician 
Lenore Zan, with whom I developed the first environmental racism bill in 2015. Yes. I had members of the indigenous community. I had other people in government. I had an activist, a social activist in Nova Scotia. Like anybody, you want a panel that will bring a different perspective. But what I find uh, often what's unique about the events that I hold is that I bring together both communities, black and indigenous. And uh, surprisingly, that doesn't happen as much as you would think in Nova Scotia. When I first came here, I said, okay, there are events for indigenous people. And when I sit in the audience, I only see indigenous people and white people. And then I go to an event with for black people and then in the audience are a few white people and just black people. And I find that I find that problematic. It makes sense, I guess, but it's problem because everybody's into their own thing, right? Their own issues. But how do I get the black community to become more acquainted with indigenous issues around environmental racism, but other issues and vice versa? And the only way you can do that is bring both communities together and invite members of both communities on panels. So I find personally that what I've done is slightly unique in Nova Scotia because I find events tend to be segregated, not just in terms of who's on the panel, but also who's in the audience. So I'm really happy about that. I'm really pleased about that because when I came to Nova Scotia, I said to myself, I want to find some ways to bring these two communities together. I don't know how. I know they have different histories. I know they have different experiences. I want to respect that but they also share many things. And how do I bring them together? And by doing events, and it seems pretty superficial, on a superficial level, you're bringing people together, doesn't necessarily mean that they get each other's perspectives. But yeah, I find in doing course. that over time, there has been a recognition of each other's pains. So I wanna to continue to do that type of work because I think it's really, really important to bridge, bridge these two communities, to build bridges, uh, to engender solidarity between two communities. I know you describe in the book also that the challenges are, are unique for Indigenous communities. It's, it's more land-related uh, issues, whereas with the Black community, it's more racial inequality specifically. It doesn't mean that Indigenous people don't know that what they're dealing with is racism, but I found when I started doing this research, yeah. there was a greater reluctance to name racism. And with Black people, as you know, <laughs> we're not that reluctant to name it. Right. With Indigenous people, they will talk about colonialism, I find. And to me, colonialism is racism, right? But it's that's the discourse okay. that's used often. Settler colonialism, anti-colonialism, anti-capitalism. And underneath these issues is racism. And this is why I choose to use the term environmental racism rather than environmental justice to do my work, because I want to center race in this, this particular topic. So, yeah, I think Black people, Indigenous people in this province in Canada are talking about the same thing, but I think they use different language to express some of the concerns that they have. And I find that extremely interesting. And one of the, I guess, ways that maybe binds these communities uh, in a very unfortunate way is the lack of access they have to participating in the consulting and decision-making process for environmental assessments when maybe a, a new plant is going to be placed into a natural area. And that was one of the things that stood out the most for me in the book was that there are these incredible barriers to just getting their voices heard in that consultation process. I mean, how do you even start to overcome that? At the root of the issue, particularly with respect to environmental racism, but other issues for both communities, is lack of consultation. That was the kind of shared concern that I heard early on and until this day about their priorities and needs. The need to have consultations with government and industry people at the outset. 
not in the middle when the project has already begun or at the end, but at the outset. And that concern was shared by Black communities and uh, Indigenous communities and Mi'kmaq communities. Um, that is actually one of the core definitions of environmental racism, is lack of consultation uh, with these communities and not being heard. Um, I, I think I talked earlier about these are communities that are not heard. They're racialized. Uh, many of them are low income. They're in isolated and rural areas. And that combination actually creates a situation where they tend to be less heard by government and government is less responsive because these are people who are seen as not having any value or not having any worth. They don't matter. So not consulting uh, these communities is for me extremely egregious because you never get to hear their concerns and their priorities around how, for example, that uh, project is going to impact them socially, economically, or in terms of their health. But even more so, there's a right, a duty to consult Indigenous people. There's no duty to consult uh, Black people in this country. Um, but in Canada, there is a duty to consult. So it, there's a unique kind of responsibility that government and industry have specifically with Indigenous people across uh, the country, and they have yet to take up that responsibility. So there's a different kind of understanding in terms of duty to consult when you talk about both communities. Um, it's not similar. Yeah, I mean, it's written into legislation for Indigenous communities, and as you say, not so with Black communities. Right. Of course, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that we're, I mean, it's been around for a few years now, and we're, we're still yeah. not seeing a lot of the commitments being fulfilled. I want to talk a bit about pushback, and anytime any kind of uh, social change is attempted, there you can expect the pushback. I mean, those in power don't like to relinquish power. It seems, unfortunately, to be human nature. And huh? what are some of the most common forms of pushback that you've received just over the last eight years with the Enrich Project? It's funny. It hasn't been as hateful that, as I thought it would be. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I mean, well, that's very encouraging. <laughs> but it's also because I would say this: Nova Scotians are very polite. <laughs> Canadians are polite, but Nova Scotians yes. are even more polite. So who knows what they're thinking? They're not necessarily saying it, what they think right. about me or what they think about my project. But I would give you some comments that I received over email over the years, which really weren't hateful. You know, when I started using the term environmental racism, people at that time in Nova Scotia didn't understand what it was. They thought it was comical that Ingrid was saying that there's racism in the environment. How can that be? So I would get email, emails from people saying, um, you know what, Ingrid, is this really about race or is it about class? Why are you making race an issue uh, here? Uh, white people are also impacted by environmental hazards. Why are you making this about race? Now, this, these weren't angry emails, but these were inquisitive emails. And as I continue mm -hmm. to do education in Nova Scotia, people start to recognize that it's not that the soil or the water is racist. <laughs> it's because the environmental policy, <laughs> right? The environmental policies are racist. So when you have environmental policies that don't take into account the experiences of racialized people and will be implemented in ways that will be harmful and that result in the spatial clustering of industries in certain communities, that's the racism. It's the racism within environmental policy. So as I continue to do more education, people in Nova Scotia started to get it. I personally don't receive hateful emails or even in emails that are inquiring about the reality of 
environmental racism in Nova Scotia and Canada anymore. It doesn't mean that everybody is in agreement with what I'm doing or gets it perhaps, but I've noticed that I don't receive those emails anymore. But you know what? I've done the work for eight years now, right? I've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of kind of raising awareness through different means. So I think in Nova Scotia, more than a lot of other provinces, they're getting it. It's time for a short break. We'll be right back. Hey folks, it's Ian here. I just want to let you know about our two nonprofit books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one serves as a toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons which are focused on four dimensions of climate change. Global warming, climate instability, consequences of global warming, and climatic flip. If you're interested in placing an order, just visit us at greenteacher.com. We also have special rates available for bulk orders. For all the positive momentum that was steadily building, there remained the barrier of facing the inertia that inevitably accompanies fundamental societal transformations. Enter education. With talking with green teachers, as the name would suggest, we are talking to educators right across the continent. And in the last chapter of the book, you offer a multi-pronged strategy for the way forward. And I want you to sort of unravel the role education or the roles I should say that education and environmental education plays in this? I think it's really key. I think while I think legislation, environmental racism legislation or legislation that centers the experiences of Indigenous and Black people is essential, I actually think education of our youngsters is even more essential because when we look at who is in government right now, and who's working in departments of environment or ministries of environment, they're typically people who are working with a different perspective and a different understanding of how environmental racism manifests. So for me, doing education, particularly looking at the curricula, the middle school and high school curricula in Canada and Nova Scotia, uh, to examine what young people are learning about not just the histories of Indigenous people in this country and Black people in this country, but environmental racism and environmental injustices to me is key. I'm pretty sure that high schools and middle schools are talking about sustainability, but sustainability is not environmental racism. When you open up a conversation about environmental racism, what you're talking about is racism. You get to talk about colonialism. You get to talk about other structural forms of inequality in Canada. It goes deeper. And it gives students some insight into how environmental racism but other inequalities manifest. So we need a deeper discussion on environmental racism and how it manifests and how it connects to other structural inequities in this country. Um, Those are our future leaders, the 14-year-old, right? If we can give the 14-year-old the right information and we can engage the 14-year-old in a critical discussion on these issues, that 14-year-old who decides to be a climate scientist or an environmental scientist or who wants to work with the Department of Environment uh, in Canada, in Nova Scotia, will have a very different perspective and language about environmental racism and will, I would assume, make a different decision with respect to environmental assessments. As you know, environmental assessments is a tool to decide where an industry gets placed, right? So they're going to make a different decision, I would think, because they had a different type of education. And they recognize how structural inequities 
are embedded within our decisions, uh, within our programs, and within our actions in a way that people who have not benefited from that type of education would not have. So this is why I think education is key. And also because it's the young people, as you can see, particularly around climate change, are the most passionate. Oh, yeah. They're the most, I mean, those are the people that I'm working with. It's, it's typically the young 20-something year old or the, somebody in their early 30s, right? They're so passionate. So you give, so they have the passion and then you give them the right intellectual tools. Wow. Amazing things can happen in terms of how they see the issue and their perspectives on the issue and how they should be addressing the issue of climate change and environmental racism. And I think a lot of students nowadays are quite familiar with overt person-to-person -person forms of racism. And th there's been a lot of great awareness about language to use and not use, but you keep coming back to structural forms of inequities and structural racism. And if you've not really had the, you know, the blanket uncovering the reality, it is kind of difficult to understand it. I mean, full disclosure, I've, I've been in Nova Scotia. I've sailed across on the ferry from Picto across the Northumberland Strait to Prince Edward Island. And as Ellen Page's voiceover at the beginning of the documentary states, it is like paradise. It's Canada's ocean playground. And it, it is this idyllic, wonderful place. And I absolutely had no idea what was happening right near the bed and breakfast, you know, where I stayed before taking the ferry. And again, people understand what words you should and should not use person to person, but these structural inequities, you really do have to get in depth about it. And, and hopefully we will see curriculum changes right across the board, not just in Canada, right across North America and beyond. It's something I'm looking at right now. I'm involved in a project with Let's Sprout, which is an NGO. And we are, we have done an environmental scan of the high school and middle school curricula. We did that last year. And we're looking to slowly, it's going to be tough, but to transform the curricula so that uh, environmental racism and other structural inequities, uh, topics on structural inequities can be embedded in the high school and middle school curricula. So I'm actually working on that right now. It would be great if uh, we could apply it across Canada. But right now, yeah, I think it's really essential for that to happen in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia has an interesting duality. Yes, it's an ocean playground, but also people, you know, have often, you know, they've said that um, not just the fact that Nova Scotia is slow to change, it is slow to change, but those racism and even sexism and classism is so deeply embedded in this province, combined with the fact that it's a province that's slow to change. Things happen very slowly here. You know, you want to get policy implemented. It takes a a long time so that combination is harmful because it means that people are sometimes unwilling or hesitant or slow to address structural inequities so it's an interesting duality beautiful lovely people uh polite people the greatest people perhaps that i've ever met in all of canada but then there's that underbelly <laughs> that we talk yeah. about the African Nova Scotian community is about 300 years of history and presence in Nova Scotia as well. So it, it really hits home when you say that it's slow to change. I mean, that, that's not an insignificant chunk of time. Yes, this is a unique community, the African Nova Scotian community. When we look at uh, black communities across Canada, and not all of them, but, you know, you'll have black communities disproportionately located in urban centers, right? Because people are coming... Right. For work right and even, even if we talk about uh, black immigrant communities from different countries in africa or the caribbean in montreal and toronto and other areas they're coming for work they're coming for a better life they're not going to go to a rural area right because everything is mm. situated in the urban center it's different in, in in nova scotia we have a 
300-year-old historic Black community that are descendants of Black loyalists from the United States, uh, Jamaican Maroons, people from Sierra Leone. And they've been here for 300 years and are disproportionately located in isolated, out-of-the-way rural areas. That's where they were placed. Yeah, so that's that's what's unique about uh, the African Nova Scotian community here. The fact that it's a historic community has been here for 300 years, but are also disproportionately located in rural, isolated, out-of-the-way areas that make it much more difficult for them in many ways to address some of the inequities that they're facing. Um, You got that intersection of race, low-income, you know, residents in rural areas, much harder to be heard when you've got that intersection. Courtesy of worldwide distribution on Netflix, the documentary and the issues it highlights have their biggest stage yet, and the broader discussion is now underway, well beyond the borders of Nova Scotia. So the film is on Netflix worldwide. The book, There's Something in the Water, same title as, as the film. In fact, the book came a year a year earlier. That's available. For somebody who's listening to this podcast or has just watched the documentary or just read the book and says, well... I want to do something in my class tomorrow. An educator says, I, I want to do something about this in in my community. What are some suggestions you would make to a teacher in Alberta, a teacher in the Yukon, Oregon, California? And of course, every community has its own unique story, but are, are there any universalities that you would suggest to the educator who's like, I, I want to take some action and put this into practice right away? I always think that the first step is connecting with the communities that are impacted. You know, the community, is there an indigenous community in your area that's being affected by environmental degradation? Do you have relationships with that community? How can you begin to partner or nurture relationships with that community? As an educator, I always think it's effective, um, but interesting to bring in people from outside of academia to speak in my class and to bringing people from in you know, effective communities in many ways to speak their truths, allow them to speak for themselves. So I think as an educator, if you want to get deep on the issue of environmental racism, I think beyond reading books and journal articles, I think firsthand experience is really key. Developing relationships, relationships with the communities is also key, but finding ways to bring in the voices of the community into your classroom. It's easier now to do it because we are all teaching, many of us are teaching online, right? (laughs) So you don't have to pay for travel expenses, perhaps you have to pay for other things maybe, but how can you bring in to your classroom on Zoom or whatever format you're using, the voices of the people who are impacted? Uh, You know, I do that with my events and I find it so engaging. It's very rare that I would do an event with other academics. It's just the way it is. I do community-based research, but I I also feel for myself, oh, much more interesting. I can give them the academic perspective. But then I've got Doreen from Sabaganagany First Nation. I've got Michelle from Pitulani First Nation. I've got Louise DeLille from Shelburne. And they're with me on a panel giving the firsthand experience, which is, of course, going to be so engaging for the audience. So for me, hearing the truth from the people who are impacted and trying to incorporate that into your curriculum and bringing them physically into your classrooms through online platforms is the way to go. Students are going to be much more engaged if you do that. And even if it's not directly written into the curriculum, I'd like to think that a lot of teachers, certainly the the teachers that I interact with on a daily basis with Green Teacher, are incredibly creative and they find a way. If something is meaningful and relevant, particularly in their community, they find a way to connect it 
while covering all of the curriculum commitments. We're so pleased that we could engage in and facilitate this discussion to just keep that dialogue going so that people can start to make those connections in their communities and build those bridges and build that trust between researchers and the people who are on the ground and see if they can start to erode the structural inequities that exist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Most women featured in the film were present for the world premiere at TIFF, and they were all invited on stage to take questions and share their stories. The road ahead is clearer than it was eight years ago, but still far from smooth. More of the faith persistence and collaborative spirit shown by Dr. Ingrid Waldron and her many community partners will be needed as we collectively respond to the systemic barriers that remain. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargas Nessi. We also voice all ads. Ian serves as the show's writer and editor. Our logo design is by Devin Terian. Look for our monthly episodes on greenteacher.com. For access to all episodes, subscribe to Green Teacher and also receive our quarterly magazine, as well as exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We'll chat again soon.